Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The temperature is nice and warm in the Boiling Point podcast studio. So come on in, get cozy, and let's enjoy the conversation. We empower leaders through thoughtful discussions to positively impact our world. Our host, Dave Vale, founder and CEO of Vision Coaching, Inc., is highlighting how we can thrive in business communities. Our conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, and inspirational storytellers are shining a spotlight on empowerment. Joining Dave this week is our special guest host, Emily Roger. Let's join the conversation with Dave and Emily. All right, so welcome back to The Bowling Point. I am here with my co-host, uh, Emily. Emily, good to have you back. Um, we, we took a little bit of a hiatus, and um, maybe you can share. Well, in the last interview, we, we talked, uh, we had a really interesting conversation um, with Mark Legier, and, uh, and you talked a lot about, and we started by just talking about the fact that you just finished an ultra marathon. And I'm wondering, since that last conversation, so long ago. <laughs> um, are you still going to do this next ultra marathon? I am. Yep. Four, four weeks away. <laughs> and you, and your, your body is going to be healed up and ready to roll? Yeah, I think so. I was like, yeah, just kind of dealing with a little tendonitis in, in my ankle after that last one. But I think that that is all healed. And I think it's not really until, uh, yeah, I get out there to then fully see how it is that I that I feel so as of now it's a go wow okay and where's where's the next one gonna be it is in Arizona okay and I chose Arizona just because of having you know so many races there for cycling and uh kind of closing that chapter and now wanting to possibly reopen that chapter but just in a different way and kind of seeing how uh mm-hmm. my experience is different in a, in a climate and a state that I love so much and have so many memories of to create different memories in yeah well so maybe you can share just if you can like uh quickly like what that what that state means to you and maybe some of your past for people that haven't watched you know documentaries and that sort of thing yeah, so I got into sport, uh, bike racing at the age of 27 with no athletic uh, background, um, just didn't have the opportunity really to do so growing up. And so I did my first ever bike race at the age of 27 in Arizona. And, um, you know, since went on to have a lot of success in the sport and a lot of hardships as well with both of my accidents getting hit by vehicles. And so I think that racing in Arizona, it... Uh, was one of the first times that I really was able to tap into the strength that I had, um, really find my perseverance, my resilience, and it gave me confidence and um, skill sets that I learned on the bike and through triathlon that I've now been able to take through so many other aspects of my life. And now kind of experience experimenting with a new sport and being able to kind of apply those same lessons that the bike taught me just to different different areas of life. So, um, yeah, I think that's why it's important for me to, to go back there. Okay. Yeah. Well, and you're applying it also to executive coaching, you know, and that's, you know, with the stuff you've been doing with leaders. Yeah. 
which I find really interesting because that intersection of leadership and, and sport and, you know, those life lessons that we learn and, and how, how we can share some of our learnings from, from sport, uh, you know, with, when we're working with executives, I find it's kind of a, it's a neat intersection, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the different ways that we're inspired, the different ways that we're inspired to tap into um, different aspects of ourselves. And uh, yeah, and the ideas that come to us when we are in, whether it's exercising or doing something that like, I, for me, exercise is almost like creative, it kind of sparks that creativity. And so putting ourselves in this position where our minds can just flow um, with whatever ideas come to us, whatever insights or awarenesses come to us, but that we have to put ourselves into those spaces in order to then be able to create them. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not inspired enough to do an ultra marathon, but I appreciate you sharing the experience and I am with you in spirit in four weeks from now in Arizona. <laughs> um, let's bring in our next guest. So this is really interesting because in our last conversation with Mark Legere, works with Huddle and, and Acadian Broadcasting, um, we, we, you know, he interviews all these leaders of people and we, and we asked them like, you know, who inspires you? And then he actually brought up the guest we're about to introduce. And um, so I'd like to, I'd like to, it was serendipity. I'd like to say we, Marcel, we chased you down and we, we said, we've got to talk to Marcel because Mark Legere had just talked about you. That wasn't the case. We actually, it was, it worked out perfectly. Um, so welcome, Marcel, um, which I would love for you to introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah. Th- and thanks for having me back. Um I, I don't know how long it was the last time we quite chatted. Uh, quite a while ago. <clears throat> yeah. So Marcel Lebrun, I'm a I'm a a maritimer for the most part. I I lived here since I was 12 years old, and um, I've been a software and tech entrepreneur most of my career. But I now am more focused on um, philanthropy and social justice issues, and um, I'm the uh, the founder of a, a a tiny home community that focuses on uh, geared to income housing in Fredericton called 12 neighbors. And, um, but I'm still involved as well in tech. So I'm involved in, in coaching a few younger CEOs and a uh, few little tech companies here and there. And <clears throat> I have an Arizona story. So just to uh, connect into your bike story. Um, one day I was uh in Arizona, in Phoenix, for um, some meetings with Salesforce.com, which is the company that acquired my company at the time, Radiant Six, and um, we had some meetings starting in the morning. So three of us went for a run, and um, <clears throat> one of my colleagues from from Australia and a couple of us from Canada. And then we saw this little trail head off to the side, and it looks like it climbed a bit. So we said, "Oh, let's go up there." And uh, but unbeknownst to us, we were actually climbing Camelback Mountain, and it was uh, probably around four thirty or five a.m. So we had to use our iPhone lights to be able to see our way up there. And then as we were going up, of course, we couldn't stop because the view just kept getting better and better as we were going to the top of the mountain. So we made it all the way up to the top, and then had to really hurry down and arrived a little bit late at our meeting. And then later in the day, somebody said. You went up Camelback Mountain in the dark? And I said, Yeah. And they said, Hmm, that's full of rattlesnakes and scorpions. You're lucky. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, we didn't know. We just saw a trail and took it. So that's my Phoenix. That's my Arizona story. 
the beauty of being naive to things sometimes, yeah. right? If you hadn't known, you wouldn't have got the that's views right. of the top. Well, and we, and we saw the sunrise from the top. So it was really cool. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Even just flying into Sky Harbor Airport and seeing Camelback Mountain. It's yeah, it's a beautiful place and beautiful to have those trails that are so central to Phoenix that you can leave your hotel, your resort, wherever it is that you're staying and that there's a trailhead right there. Yeah. And hit them accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do yeah. love I do love that comment of being naive. Like I, I there's, there is, it's a real gift in some ways. You oh, know? totally. <laughs> so, like, like you go to some, some, some place and the locals say, why, why did you go there? And you're like, oh, I'll never go back. But at the time, you know, you didn't know any better. So. That's how um, I do it. That's how I do everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think that's really, you mentioned, you, Marcel, you mentioned um, you, you moved here when you're 12. Like where were you before? Just out of curiosity. Oh yeah. I, I grew up in Southern Ontario, a little town called Cornwall, which is a pulp mill yeah. you know, kind of industrial town. And mm-hmm. I moved, I moved here, uh, followed, you know, my father's work is, is how we ended up moving here. And so I went to middle and high school in Moncton and then moved to, I've lived in Moncton, Fredericton and St. John. So I, I went to UMB in Fredericton and then I started my career working in St. John and then ended up back in Fredericton. Um, so, the, so you've done the circuit, you've done the, I have, I have done the circuit. Okay. Well, I'm always curious about how people arrive here because I, I didn't arrive here until I was, uh, I guess, 29 years old. But it feels like home. But as I'm reminded, I'm even though I have a family from here and kids born here, I'm I come from away. Uh, always will be. Um, but man, I love this. I love this region. It's just amazing. And what what one of the things that drew me to it is, um, and I, I don't know if people outside of uh, New Brunswick or Atlanta, Canada, would necessarily understand this, but there's a real um, entrepreneurial streak here. And I think you're, you're a great example of that, Marcel. Um, you know, how, how did you get into the entrepreneurial world and the tech world? Like what, you know, because you, you kind of briefly mentioned Radiant 6. Um, it's, it's a pretty significant story uh, in terms of what you guys accomplished. But I'm just curious, like, what's the backstory to getting into um, tech and, and, and the entrepreneurial yeah. world? Well, I think for me, uh, there's two things that converged. I got into tech just because I always liked building things. And so whether it was Lego as a kid or making go-karts or doing whatever, <clears throat> I just liked to build things. And, um, you know, I had this little uh, Radio Shack electronics 401 kit, you know, when I was a kid and you could make radios and things like that. <clears throat> and uh, so I thought I liked you know, electrical, and I like the idea of solving problems and whatnot. But entrepreneurship in particular wasn't on my radar at all. So I went to engineering school, and the view was that I wanted to build stuff. <clears throat> but um, what I, I'd say is I became a, an entrepreneur somewhat by accident, because, you know, I saw some opportunities and said, Oh, why don't I try solving this problem? And someone else came along and said, hey, this would make a good company, you know, maybe we should make a company out of this. And uh, then I kind of fell into that. And then I discovered that that too is building. And so I enjoyed uh, building companies and of course, a lot more challenges with that because it's uh, got lots of human factors involved and everything. <laughs> but I uh, I really enjoyed it. And I just kind of continued to do that in my career. But I have really, I have, I have all my business training just came on the fly. Mm. Yeah. And um, 
Marcel, I listened to you speak, I guess a week and a half, almost two weeks ago now at the Larsh event in St. John. And you, I could have listened to, it was like when it was over, I was like, oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> I could have listened to you speak for so long. And uh, I love hearing you saying that you're, you know, working cool. with new CEOs and leaders now and coaching because in listening to you speak was like, wow this guy has coaching presence and um and and just yeah listening to your thoughts on things your way of doing things and i think this will kind of lead us into what it is that you are doing now which very much about building things and mm-hmm. um you know i i i just yeah that you listening to you was so impactful and you had all eyes in the room were on you and focused well, also, a uh, few eyes were on our, uh, our our mayor, our community member. Uh, it was really enjoyable that I got to come and bring, we had a table, and we got to bring uh, our first six community members who moved in to our community, all, all of whom, you know, a year earlier would have been uh, living living rough. And so to have them all together at an event like this at a table <clears throat> and then to have uh, Al get up and kind of share his story a little bit was a really special, uh, special night for me. Yeah. You, you could, you could see that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want, actually, I want to learn more about that before we jump into that though. I just, you know, uh, one of the things that Mark brought up was, you know, he, he mentioned you and, and some others um, having you know real success and being drawn to the fact that you're you mentioned being a philanthropist you know and wanting to give back um, because you know what could happen is someone can have you know a lot of and, and some people do um, have have a, a lot of success as you would have in terms of Radiant Six. Um, I'd love to, maybe you can share with the audience like what that what that like what that became and this whole sale to uh, the Salesforce, which I think is one of the, if not the biggest in Atlanta, Canada. Um, exit but the fact that you didn't leave you didn't you didn't take off you've kind of more than doubled down and one of your colleagues that I run across all the time David Alston you know he's just a big part of this um, you know the fabric of this community as well and I, I you know I I go with my family to timber tops do the zip line and I always mm. see David oh you know, yeah. he, he's sitting out there and I'm like hey David how are you doing and it's just funny like he just he just you know he just he just kind of he's just part of the He's like one of the trees there. You know what I mean? Um, right, it's, right. it's that whole community-minded piece that I just I find really remarkable. Um, but mm. but for for listeners that aren't familiar with Radiant Six, maybe you can give them that that backstory in terms of what that meant to uh, the tech community in this part of the world. Yeah, I mean, Radiant Six was a, a software company founded in two thousand and six. Um, the founder is uh, his name is Chris Newton. He was also the founder of Q1 Labs, which IBM acquired uh, actually a short time after Salesforce acquired Radiant 6. And um, <clears throat> Chris Newton's one of these guys who reads a lot and sees trends. And uh, this was in the early days of uh, the disruption in marketing caused by social media. And uh, he just observed how um, the, the paths of information flow were changing, you know, how people were becoming aware of things that were being influenced were changing and that companies were spending all their money on these old channels to influence people and everything was moving to this new world of social. 
and that surely businesses are going to be interested in understanding what's being said on those channels. And that was kind of the root of uh, Radiant 6, which was how can we help companies understand what the voice of their customer is? And so <clears throat> we built that business and it was um, a great product, a great team um, and good timing. And we were able to really execute on building a product and growing sales uh, to the point where, you know, we had a couple thousand customers, including well over half of the Fortune 500. So a lot of the really big brands in the world from, you know, Pepsi and Nestle and, and uh, you know, large tech brands, Dell Computer, others were using our product. And then that um, led to a number of partnerships. And one that was quite strong was with Salesforce.com, who was is one of the fastest growing software companies in the world, actually got to 10 billion in revenue faster than Oracle and Microsoft, but it's lesser known because they're on the, the enterprise side of things, not a consumer company. Yeah. Um, and they, they really had a dominant position in customer service and in customer relationship management. And we're seeing uh, marketing technology start to take off. So we began some discussions and that led to um, their acquisition of Radiant 6 in 2011, which was for 2011 was the largest uh, tech exit in Canada that, that year. Um, so that, that was a, a, you know, a big deal for our region to have uh, a market leader like Salesforce and acquire a company that's uh, based here. And, um, and then to continue to, you know, to, to, to grow it um, within, within Salesforce as kind of the, the, the cornerstone of the, of the, what, what became the marketing cloud or the marketing business unit. Yeah. So that's a bit of the background. That's great. Well, and then again, and it gave, I feel like, um, you know, a story like that gives other entrepreneurs the confidence that it can, you can actually do that from, from this part of the world. That's, that was my sense. And, you know, cause it, I, and you mentioned Q and labs, like, and these are some names that in this part of the world are thrown around quite a bit as, you know, here's examples, but it's like, you need that example almost. To, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it takes away the, the doubt, you know, that, Oh, you know, things like that don't happen here while well, mm -hmm. they do. And so it takes that away. Um, there's actually, an, if anyone's interested, there's an interesting book that was written about the whole story of Q1 and Radiant 6 by Gordon Pitts. It's called Unicorn in the Woods. And it's quite entertaining. Yeah. And uh, he kind of tells that that whole story of, you know, how it came, came about. Yeah. So, so sorry, Emily, I, you were, you were going to go down this. So I just, I think that backstory is so interesting because again, mm -hmm. so, so Marcel and others, you know, could have, could have, you know, taken off to some exotic part of the world but they, they chose to stay here and, and, uh, and are doing really interesting things. And, and you, you got to witness that the other night talking about um, uh, 12 Neighbors Project. Yeah, and um, I feel like there's good, there can be so many. Well, and before that, and before that. But mm. even, uh, you know, Marcel, hearing about the, um, yeah, of sharing, sharing your story, of then showing people that, yeah, these things can happen. And that so often we think of like, oh, it's the Maritimes, it's a smaller town or it's only Fredericton or only, um, but it's like that those things do not limit us in 
any way. And even just that interest in building things in whether it's Lego, whether it's go-kart, whether it's like, again, tapping into that creativity and those interests that you have. And when you stay true to those passions of what can possibly happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what's, you know, um, interesting about that is um, there's a few, you know, uh, I think the, the disproportionate, if you look at the purpose of business, you know, uh, traditionally, a lot of people look at it as, okay, it's a vehicle to go make money and create wealth. But really, the purpose of business is to improve the state of the world. It's it's all relationship. You know, I make a table and I'm proud of it and I it's all it's nice and crafty and then I sell it to somebody and and you know in some ways the the root of what Radiant Six was about is how mass marketing had kind of depersonalized and dehumanized a lot of things and that social was kind of rehumanizing business. In some ways I think there is a general movement that more and more people are recognizing that you know, business is not here just to extract, hmm. but to, but to give. And so to me, <clears throat> a transition into philanthropy, um, which by the way, I love the definition of, because most people have a, mi- a mistaken notion of the, the word philanthropy. They think of as giving money, you know, when they say, oh, this is a philanthropist, it's someone who gives money, but the word, uh, Filio and anthropos means love people. And so uh, it's, it's love people is what the word means. And that's way more complex and layered than giving money. And I think that kind of reclaiming that word um, for what it should be, I think is, is really an interesting thing to me. And in some ways, it's kind of what the purpose of business is, you know, in, in, in a big picture, if your business is important to our community, um, then it brings value, it improves, you know, improves our community. So, uh, so a lot of the Radiant Six crew, you'd be surprised, there's, there's kind of, I'd say, a disproportionate percentage of people that are focusing on um, things that that are more led by the mission versus led by the let's say the financial objective. Yeah. I was, yeah. Uh, I was really, you know, like when you speak that, I, I, I think of uh, our, our, our mutual friend, uh, all of us in, in Greg Hemmings and, you know, and his, his being ambassador mm-hmm. of the B Corp movement and, yeah. you know, and, and just, it just really resonates with, I think a number of us that got into business, whether it's in tech or, you know, kind of in the coaching service that we offer or whatever it may be. Um, it, it, and, and I, I always wonder, like, because I remember early days when I was, you know, I, I just, I wasn't a good employee. So I just kind of hmm. felt I had to be self-employed. So it, it kind of, that's how things evolved for me. And then, and then I, you know, uh, started a company and try, you know, and I got into this coaching business and started vision coaching. And, and what, one of the things that came back to me was people would say, yeah, you know, Dave, you're, you might be a little too nice for business. And I always thought like, isn't, what does that say about, people's view of business like you got, you have to be cutthroat and you have to be and and I always wonder like where does that come from because you know in talking to you and the success you've had you know that doesn't come across in fact you seem exactly the opposite you know in terms of loving people and, and giving back it, it's a really good observation I think if you do look at things <clears throat> statistically there are a large number of successful companies that are led by people that you would probably call 
not very nice. Let's just put it that way. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I, I think they, they can have a, a measure of success, but I don't think it's by any means the, the norm or definitely not, you know, necessary. I think that generally, you know, leaders are very focused on are very skilled at execution and focused on execution. And sometimes um, when you're focused on that, there's people that can get injured or, you know, hurt along the way. Um, so there tends to be a little bit of a, um, sometimes in business leaders, a, a little bit of a pendulum swing toward the mission. But in my experience, like, the, the things I love the most when I reminisce about <clears throat> Radiant 6, it's not actually the business success or the financial success that we had, but it's the fact that people say, oh, that that's never been replicated in my career. I've never had a, a job like that since. That was really amazing. That I enjoy hearing a lot more than um, whatever you know, dollar impact it might've had. So I think in the, in the total sense of impact, you know, I think that you can be a strong leader and a nice guy. I think nice guy, nice woman, man, woman, whatever. Um, it's, it's not the, um, you know, the, the cutthroat leaders that, uh, that win for sure. Amen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Yeah. And then, so then to kind of, you know, tie in the 12 neighbors and, and speaking on just community and building community. And I love that you gave that definition of philanthropy um, yeah. because yeah, it's like, I see so much of it. It's just giving yeah, and giving money yet. I see what you're doing and it is like, no, you're not just like providing like just that development or just giving them the means. Like you're actually loving people, caring people, caring caring for people and getting to know what it is that they need to then be able to assist with that. So can you share for the listeners who may not know, although I feel like everybody knows, um, but of what 12 Neighbors is? Yeah, well, um, on the surface, <clears throat> 12 Neighbors looks like an affordable housing community focused on helping people who've been experiencing homelessness to be housed. But <clears throat> what I say is that we're really an organization whose mission is helping people overcome barriers to a full and independent life. And housing is the starting point. Um, but how I got there was, 
again, back to kind of my engineering mind and problem solving is I remember um, uh, meeting an individual a number of years ago called Rick Tobias, who worked at Young Street Mission in Toronto as the CEO for about 30 years. He just passed away this year, actually. And uh, he was speaking at a, a justice conference and someone asked him, you know, what advice do you have for young people who, you know, want to help, want to make a difference? And um, he got very emotional and he said, uh, you know, I'm really proud of the work that we've done in the last 30 years. We've helped a lot of people, but we haven't really changed our city. We haven't really changed anything in the city. So my advice is maybe you shouldn't just do the things we've been doing, but maybe you have to think about this whole thing a bit differently. And that really got me going because I saw that around me. I saw, wow, there's so much effort that just, that just, you know, keeps getting poured out and poured out and poured out. And supposedly that is helpful, but it doesn't change anything. So who's doing the best job of actually changing things? And so that started me on a lot of research and visiting places to try and understand who's who's doing work such that when you come back in five years, the place is different and people are different and it's not just the same as it always is or even worse. And uh, And I found those places and I kind of tried to synthesize, you know, all those lessons into what we're trying to build here in Fredericton with 12 Neighbors. And that's why I say that we're really focused on um, helping people overcome barriers to an independent life, not just housing, but housing is a really important starting point, you know. Um, And, you know, you mentioned get the idea of, you know, giving. I would say, you know, you you probably heard me say this in St. John, but we're we're kind of addicted a little bit in the West to this mindset of, um, okay, you know, I just give a few dollars or I drop a can in a box, you know, or things like that. And, and it feels immediate. It feels good, you know, um, and, and somehow we don't know what else to do. So we do a lot of that. We do a lot of emergency relief and uh, we're pretty good at crises. And I think, you know, governments in some ways are better at dealing with crises than, than actual long-term change or development. So we go, oh, we have all these people that are outside and winter's coming. What are we going to do? So that's a crisis. So we say, well, let's uh, find a building and let's put some beds in it. Okay, great. All right. We just created 20 beds. Okay. But next year, you're going to need 30. And next year, you're going to need 40. So investments in uh, relief, crisis relief, always increase the demand for crisis relief because they normalize that way of living. It kind of says, mm. Hey, you know, it's okay that you're living outside and winter's coming and we're going to put you in this place. And it's like, all of a sudden, Oh, should that be my experience every year? You know, that I live this way. And the answer is no. But if you continue to invest in the emergency relief, you're kind of saying, yes, it is. So we really focus on long-term development and that's a lot harder. It's way harder to do than relief. Relief is easy. You drop in, you do your thing, and you and you drop out. Uh, but development is really hard work. I, you, I love the holistic approach you're taking, right? <clears throat> um, 
and I think it's easy for people. Well, I just wonder like how many people just don't maybe understand fully mm-hmm. what someone who's homeless has gone through. And I, I believe and certain, you know, there's certain kind of ways of thinking that maybe just alleviates, you know, you, that, that person from, from maybe feeling too much, but it's like, well, they've, they've caused this themselves, you know, or they're, they don't work hard enough or whatever it may be. And, and um, I, I had the good fortune when I lived in Vancouver, I worked with uh, young offenders and I worked with um, um, coming out of, out of jail. And some of the stories I would hear just like, like, the, you know, you th- I couldn't help but think like, they're not that much different than me. If, if anything, I just, I just by the good a stroke of good fortune, I happened to be in a family that had some stability or whatever it may have been. Right. Um, but what, what are you learning about some of the stories that, 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 you know, people that are actually going to be, you know, um, I guess, um, participating or, or, you know, being, um, uh, you know, involved in 12 neighbors, like what, what, what did you learn mm. from that perspective around the, you know, some of the barriers that people are up against that maybe some of us wouldn't fully appreciate? Yeah. Well, it's, um, it seems like you, you open that door and you, it's like, um, there's quite a deep, you know, well of, of layers of learning. Um, and, you know, to understand the degree of trauma that some individuals have been through and that they're surviving to the extent that they are is actually quite incredible. I mean, there's people that, you know, others might look at them as, you know, fairly um, stuck and, uh, and have no idea what they've carried, you know, what they've had to carry, what they've punched through, what they've survived so, yes, there are often multiple co-occurring cause and effect issues in people's lives. You know, they all are consequential and causal at the same time. So substance use, mental health, poverty, homelessness, you know, homelessness causes mental health issues. Mental health issues cause homelessness. Homelessness causes you know, substance use, substance use causes home. Like they, they, they're all, you know, interrelated, but often it's trauma that was the starting point, some kind of trauma. And then it kind of compounds and, you know, homelessness in in and of itself is a trauma and, and substance use uh, addiction is a trauma, you know? And so that, so the, the things that, our consequences of the trauma are also traumatizing. So, so there's a long path for people <clears throat> to overcome those issues. But what, what I've learned is that, you know, when you look at the individual and you, you see someone who's, um, you know, I like one of my favorite um, uh, persons I learned from a, a fellow called Del Seymour, who's the, they call him the mayor of the Tenderloin district in San Francisco. And he says, well, we don't give people dignity. He goes, they already got it. They just forgot which pocket they put it in. So we just remind them which pocket they put it in, you know? And, um, and it's this notion where we think somehow, you know, it's, uh, it's up to us to bestow, you know, <clears throat> dignity on somebody or skill or whatever. But a lot of the ingredients are there, but they've been kind of scarred and covered over and uh, the way um, and, and the narrative that others have about them 
is also connected to the narrative that they have about themselves. So if you, you know, experience uh, poverty of circumstance long enough, it starts to become a poverty of identity. I, I met this woman, you know, and a Filipino woman in Calgary who, who ended up homeless, her and her husband. And she had to, you know, she found herself in food bank lines. And one day she said, well, I'm here, I must deserve this, you know? So, <clears throat> so there was the start of the circumstances changing the identity narrative and then it further developed into i don't i don't know that i can ever work again you know where she held a very successful job just a year later but had a had a um a child and a mental health challenge and a co- and a loss of job and a bunch of compounding issues and it just kind of cycled from there and what it took is somebody coming alongside of her accepting her not asking her to be defined by her deficits and to uncover her strengths. And so we talk about being strength-based. So rather than ask somebody, when you ask somebody, what happened? Tell me your story. What you're saying is the most defining characteristic about you is something bad that happened. So that's why I'm asking that question. What if you start with asking and uncovering strengths? It's like, oh, I'm not used to that question. Well, maybe that's the thing I see the most. And so learning to see those things and uh, learning to, uh, I guess, become kind of an archaeologist of, you know, the person that was, you know, the person that was that's just kind of like an archaeologist sees the, the artifact, even though it's all covered over in dust and knows how to delicately take it off. And all of a sudden, everybody sees, ah, oh, it is beautiful. There it is. It's kind of like that's the job, but it's a tough job because, you know, sometimes when people are injured, you know, they do, they do things that don't appear to make sense. You know, why would you do that? And uh, it does make sense when you see how they, what they've had to do to survive. Um, But uh, it takes a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of patience for sure. But it's hugely rewarding, you know, when, when you see people move, move ahead. Yeah. And, you know, in, in you talking about the narrative that others hold up against us and that we can hold up against other people and how quick we can be to judge and how quick we can be to judge ourselves. And, um, you know, even being at the, the large event of that, where it is, you know, supporting community and creating community for people with intellectual disabilities and, um, you know, that's like near and dear to my heart as I have my oldest sister has Down syndrome and now um, dementia. And just this thing of like, when we break down the narratives that we hold about people, and when we really tap into and help them see their strengths of just what is possible for individuals, for people to be able to live on their own, to support themselves, to integrate into the community. But so often, we can easily not based on yeah, the narrative that, that, that we're holding up against them. And that, that then just because becomes a part of our identity and something that really, uh, stood out to me when you were speaking was about the, um, the winning the lottery. 
mm. and how we can win. And I, I'll have you touch on that because I think it was just a powerful thing to say, but how even just being born into a certain family is winning a lottery. Living in yeah. Canada, we're winning the lottery. Yeah, I, I first heard that concept from um, an individual who's a, a, a Jesuit priest in LA called Father G. They call him uh, Greg Boyle, and he works with ex-gang members. And he said, yeah, these fellas in here, they haven't, they didn't win the zip code lottery. They didn't win the parent lottery. They didn't win the education lottery. They didn't win any lottery. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people have the mistaken notion that, you know, somehow if we're successful, it's because we've worked hard and made smart decisions and things like that. And, you know, it's generally true that good things come if you work hard, but that's not the whole picture. And um, we forget that even the ability to work hard is a gift, you know, that you received that that not everyone has received. And um, you know, many, many other things are received. And so when you look at, at people who are, you know, received very little of those, will say, you know, kind of building blocks, you know, how, how, how do you expect any different outcome? You know, I met, I met gang members in LA who were, you know, doing break and enters at three years old, their father would break the window, put the kid through the window, get the kid to unlock the front door. And then the kids would like escape into gang life as young as they could just to get away from you know, the situation in their home, you know, and just would go from that to prison to jail to, and, uh, and just was born into that lifestyle. So then someone comes along and says, why would you do that? Why would you choose this? And they go, "Uh, because I don't have a choice, you know, doesn't appear to be a choice. So not all choices are the same. I think we look at people and say, why would they choose that? But not all choices are the same. So it's important to keep that that perspective. I think that's you know one of the biggest gifts that I I got from my parents at a young age is just that recognition that I, I never use that language or I love that language around the lottery, but it was clear that you know they they were suggesting that I had won a lottery and but don't take that for granted and uh, mm. and you know and somehow. Uh, I, you know, it's just, it's just, it, you know, it's just interesting how you could, you could just make all these assumptions had you not had that maybe critical kind of um, support or, 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 or having, you know, a family that pushed you in a, in a place and say, by the way, you're, you know, you're very fortunate, you know, in what you have and not everyone has this. And, and by the way, it could all be gone tomorrow, like with any of us, right? Yeah. Um, my father did, uh, he was a lawyer and he, he did a lot of personal injury work. And I remember we're walking, seeing a homeless person in Vancouver and at a very young, I was in my early twenties and, and, you know, feeling bad for this guy. And he said, you know, we're, we're only one, one car accident away from that day, you know, and then he shares a story about a client of his. And it was just so impactful for me just to recognize, okay, that could be, that's could be anyone. Cause it, it's just so, I, you know, and I think that's what we're, you're sharing. Um, and, and with that recognition, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't it make it easier to, um, appreciate where maybe someone's coming from and that they maybe, you know, they, they didn't have the right lottery ticket. You know, the other thing that comes to mind <clears throat> as you share that is um, there could be, you know, you, you hear that a lot. People go, Oh, this could be worse. 
you know, you could be worse. You could be that. You could be that. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden at one point I'm like, wait a minute, something feels a little bit off with that thinking. And what it is, it's, it's a sense that we have that, uh, okay, this is what good looks like. And, and, and I could have it bad, Mm. but, but is, is bad, bad. And, um, I'll kind of elaborate a little bit. Like I I went through this learning a little bit in my, my own personal experience a few years ago, because I, um, I was, I was quite sick for a year uh, with a concussion. So I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do, I couldn't even, I could barely shower. You know, I, I basically spent my days in the dark uh, just trying to get through. And, um, and at, at some point on that journey, um, my mindset changed from kind of focusing on all the things I had lost to focusing on all the things that I had that day. And so instead of saying, oh, man, I can only walk for five minutes and then I'm done, I could change and, my, and choose to be thankful that I can walk for five minutes because I couldn't a few weeks ago. So I'm going to make the best use of that five minutes. And so we might look at other people and go, oh, they have this and this. Boy, I'm not them. I'm thankful. But really, is it is it your circumstances that dictate your experience in life? Or is it your, your choices and your relationships, you know, and things like that? So you talk about, you know, you talk about your sister, Emily, you know, you could, you could, you could um, focus on her declining capabilities, cognitive capabilities, but really it's, it's a relationship, you know, that matters. And, and you, and so you focus on that, on that relationship. And so I, I think it's, it's what challenged me in that is when I look at people and where they're at, I don't have a picture of where they all need to be. Hmm. You know, it's not up to me to say, oh, you know, you're going to, your life will be full if you can only get over here. No, not necessarily, you know. Um, And um, it may be that, you know, there's, there's community members in our community that may never get to a point where they can hold down employment but maybe they can still live a full life, you know, with that. And, uh, and that's okay. So I don't want to impose, you know, my notion of what good looks like. So that's another thing I kind of had to learn to let go of a little bit. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Marcel. Like I, I, that's, that's, uh, um, I can't imagine how tough that would go through. And, you know, and, and I'll talk about it as a takeaway, but this idea of appreciative inquiry, you know, like, that it's a it's a it's a simple concept to maybe understand, but I but to to practice it like that, like at least for myself, I just I could be so much better. <laughs> if, you know, mm. Even when things are relatively good, you know. Well, and sometimes you have to be forced to. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's not yeah. something we choose to, and yeah. that's why, interestingly, the people who've been through the most difficulty tend to be, you know, tend to have some of the most amazing character traits and gifts you know, because of what they've been through. And, and so you, when you hang out with people who've been through a lot, 
you tend to see that. Um, this conversation could go on for a long, <laughs> long time. Um, Emily, like I, I you know, it, it, like I appreciate how how you're how sharing you are, like you know, like in terms of how, how giving you are, I should say, and sharing your personal stories and what you're doing, and it helps me understand maybe why you've thrown yourself into twelve neighbors and what. Just before we we conclude here, can you uh, like um, describe what what the projects you know actually yeah. doing <clears throat> some of the, the more tactical things around yeah. it. I yeah. philosophy behind it, but it'd be really neat to hear the holistic view of it. Yeah, so we're we're building a tiny home community. Um, we have twenty seven homes on the property right now, and we're we're building uh, ninety six homes in total. Um, they're grouped in these, it's a very walkable, bikeable kind of community, uh, not built for cars. It's, um, everyone has, um, a, a group of 12 neighbors. So the little blocks are 12 houses each, and it's kind of set up with different levels of privacy from, you know, we have people that just stay in their house and we have people that walk around and know everybody and everything in between. And then we have a, a team of, um, people that come alongside and help people um, challenge them and invite them to think through their goals and how they might be able to, you know, overcome barriers and pursue those goals. And, um, and then the third thing we're doing is um, what I saw in a lot of the places that were very effective is tapping into the power of meaningful work. And so we're building a, a building called the social enterprise center, which will, create low barrier uh, progressive employment for people that if all they can do is half day a week, we start with that. Uh, but we get people going um, in things. So we're going to create businesses there and food, retail, construction and entrepreneurship. And uh, that uh, project has, has started and is going to kind of carry through the winter. And right now we're building houses at a rate of one new house per week. And we're going to continue that uh, through to um, the all winter and um, uh, through to uh, March 2024 when we put House 96 on the property. Hmm. Amazing, amazing! I got I, I I'm so disappointed. <laughs> I didn't get to hear more about this at the large dinner. Um, we well, have to come on a tour sometime. We yeah, do just, well, that's, I was thinking, is that is that? Is we, yeah, we've been doing. We started doing tours once a month, so we posted on our Facebook page, and people can come and meet the mayor and get a walk through and visit a tiny home and stuff like that. And this is the mayor of, of 12 Maiden. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's self-appointed, but we've kind of, kind of rolled, <laughs> we've kind of, we've kind of rolled with it. Is this Al that you were talking yeah, about? Yeah. Yeah. This is Al. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Al, was, Al and his fiance Shanda were the third couple to move into our community. And, and actually Al is just a very good spokesperson and he likes representing the community and he does a great job at it. So, you know, it's kind of, so we're like, okay, there's his gifts. Let's work with that. You know? Yeah. We, all, we, ever, we need Al in, in every community, right? Yeah. Yeah, we do. So, and if people want to learn more about this, Marcel, where do they? Yeah, you can go to 12neighbors.com, spelled the Canadian way. So O-U-N-E-I-G-H-B-O-U-R-S. And also um, facebook.com slash 12 neighbors. We post a lot of video. So there's a ton of video and pictures on Facebook that, you know, we do regular updates as we're developing the community. It's usually Al and I together doing an 
update. So uh, it's a lot of content there to find out more about what we're doing. Awesome. Well, that's uh, have you, done, you haven't done the tour. Maybe we can no. Yeah, I would love that to. Would, that would be so much fun. Yeah. Um, well, um, Marcel, thank you so much for sharing your story. And um, I mean, there's there so much packed into this last hour. We try to keep these around 45 minutes and we're <laughs> well over that. And I think we can go for another hour easily. Um, and what we do now is, is, is some takeaways. And, and I'll just warn you that Emily's takeaways always are way better than my takeaways. <laughs> yeah. and so she'll go first and she'll go and I'll go, geez, I wish I thought of that. So I'm just warning you that <laughs> that's, that'll probably right. that generally happens. So anyway, what are your takeaways? Well, what is your takeaway? You go, Dave, in case okay. I, in case okay. I have the same one as you. Yeah. I don't think this time you would. I'm actually writing stuff down because Emily's really kind of caused me to up my game. Um, but I, what, what comes to me is a, I went to this school uh, called Notre Dame in Saskatchewan. It was founded by Pere Murray, Father Murray. And, um, and the, the uh, motto was Lecter e Emergo in Latin, which is struggle and emerge. And, um, and I just, you know, when Marcel was saying, you know, we're talking about some of the very most interesting people, the ones that have had the, probably, at least this is the way I interpret it, some of the biggest struggles or, or you know, right now they're in this, they're in the middle of that struggle, but that you know, when you emerge, you, you, you in your way, whatever way that is, is just you, your story is so powerful and you can be so sage and there's so much wisdom. There. Um, and what life is, you know, doesn't have struggle, right? Um, so that's that's my takeaway, uh, along with just the notion of appreciative inquiry, strength base. Uh, I think is is, a, is is just a brilliant way to go about uh, kind of philosophically and also challenging. Um, to, to, to keep on, you know, whether it's you as an individual, your kids or your clients or whatever you're doing, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the best way to go. It's, and I find it challenging, you know, very truthful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think mine is around this concept of, um, philanthropy and that I think that, you know, before I would have seen it as, um, that it would have to be someone who is of certain, uh, financial value um, to be a philanthropist um, and changing that narrative on that in that anybody can be a philanthropist. And if you are willing to donate what it is that you do have and whether that is experience, skill sets, talents, um, that ultimately, yeah, we all have things to give to create the world to be a better place. Um, and yeah, this like, yeah, I think Marcel, it really is um, like it pulls on my heartstrings to hear the things that you are doing and the life that you are giving to people, the the dignity that you're helping them find about themselves and, and the ability to just kind of create that um, change for them to see themselves differently and see one another um, differently. And uh, yeah, so thank you for that. Mm. This has been really awesome. Yeah, and I always remind people I'm not I'm not uh, a downer on giving money. I think it's it can be very helpful, but it's about like spending yourself, you know, first, and and then and then your money along with it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm glad yeah. you like that term. Yeah, because it's not out of reach. You know, a lot of people think oh, I'd never call myself a philanthropist. Got the wrong definition. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've given us a new definition about loving people. I think it's it's perfect. I never. Never, never knew that. I knew some. I know some. I know a bunch of people. Um, Jean Viev, we used to work with you. Marcel is going to uh, help us uh, 
um, you know, do this final chapter on the podcast. In the terms yeah. Of and, and I have to say, so I started at Radiant 6 when I was 23. Um, and I didn't think anything because that was probably only the second or third real job. I didn't think anything of an executive that you could walk into their office, ask any random question, and they would take the time to talk to you, to ask how you were, to answer any questions you have. That's obviously not the norm in business, but I can say like what Marcel was saying about how everybody, we call it our Radiant 6 family or our 6 family. Uh, it was an experience that I don't think I'll ever have again in my life because of that, just that attitude. And it was about community. It was about giving back. Um, and I've brought a lot of those lessons. Um, been very fortunate to have uh, at times in my life, probably when he didn't realize I needed a motivational message, uh, sometimes had Marcel and Alston and others send those messages through that just makes a difference and I love seeing what they're doing and it makes me kind of more inspired to do more in my own community as well. Um, you can go back, we're gonna post the original episodes actually that uh, were with Marcel and they're talking about social entrepreneurship and also about growing as a CEO in the in the Radiant Six and different companies. We'll have those linked on this uh, episode and they're on the boilingpointpodcast.com and we post everything to our social media channels. So LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and we post the video on YouTube and Facebook. Oh, and, and a shout out to David Alston for giving us the name, The Boiling Point, in episode three of however many we've done. So um, that's uh, Marcel's colleague. So, merci Marcel, appreciate it. Very happy, happy to chat. I enjoyed the discussion. Have a good day. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Boiling Point Podcast. Remember to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite listening platform. To find out more, head to our website at boilingpointpodcast.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. To find out more about Dave Vale's work, head over to visioncoachinginc.com. Thanks for listening, and make sure to check out our next conversation. to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.